Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 3, verses 20 to 28. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he, is first, he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. This is the word of the Lord. Um, it's great to be back with you um, this Sunday. Last Sunday, uh, my family and I, we were uh, not far from here. We were in the Bronx at Fordham Community Church, and I had the opportunity to preach God's word to our brothers and sisters there. They send their greetings. Um, Fordham Community Church is a wonderful um, body of believers. If you have friends who live in the Bronx who are looking for a church, please direct them to FCC, Fordham Community Church. Org. I think what they'll find there is a really welcoming family that loves Jesus and will love them too. Um, but let's give our attention to God's word now. Let's pray and let's jump in to the gospel according to Mark. Lord, you have given us your word because you know that we need direction. You have revealed yourself to us in your word because you know that without understanding who you are, we can't really know ourselves. We can't even know our purpose. We can't even know why we're here Apart from you, there's no hope for us, and so you've revealed yourself, but we ask that you'd give us eyes to see what it is that you're showing us. Help us to know who you are, to be able to see who you clearly present yourself to be in the pages of Scripture, and help us to trust you, help us to love you, help us to respond with faith and obedience to everything that you show us about yourself. In Jesus' name, we ask all of that. Amen. The passage that Carolyn just read for us, it presents us with three different takes on Jesus. I don't know if you noticed, but it presents us with three different perspectives on who Jesus is. And in doing so, this passage drives us to ask this question, what do you think? What do you think about Jesus? Who do you think he is? Who do you think he was? Because as we look through this passage, we're going to see that his family— said that he was crazy. These scribes, they said he was a con man, but he himself said that he was king. So which one is it? Was he a crazed man? Was he a con man? Or is he, in fact, king? Who was right? Who was right? I don't think there are really any other options other than these three. See what you think as we go through this passage. If, if there are other possibilities on who you think he might be, then I'd be really glad to, to hear that and talk about that. But as far as I can see, we've got three choices. He's either a crazy man, a con man, or he really is king. So let's look at 
the three perspectives on Jesus presented in this passage. His family's take, this is, these are going to be the three points that we kind of work through as we go through the passage. We're going to look at his family's take, the expert's take, and then his own take. So to set the scene earlier in this chapter, Jesus, you may remember, was in a town called Capernaum. And when he was in Capernaum, he was mobbed by people who wanted to hear him, they wanted to touch him, they were sick, they were possessed people, and they wanted to be healed. They wanted to be freed, and so they were trying to get to Jesus. There were also very powerful people in that town of Capernaum who wanted Jesus dead, and they were planning on how to kill him. And so, after healing many people, Jesus decided to retreat. He, he moves out to the sea, the Sea of Galilee, to get some space and some safety. But when he gets there, he's surrounded again. He's mobbed. He's under intense pressure. So much pressure, in fact, that he tells his followers, he says, get, get a boat ready. Because these, these folks might crush me. They might kill me inadvertently. He kept healing people in that mob. And when he was done, eventually he, he walked up, he walked up to, to a mountain, a, a place of solitude for some peace and quiet, and there he prayed. He spent the night speaking with his father, God, and eventually he called his closest followers to himself, and, and he appointed them to be his representative, his, his, his messengers. That's what Alex taught you about last week from Mark chapter 3, if you were here for that. But all of that brings us to where we are now in verse 20, where it says this. It says, then he went home. He went home. It's a sense of relief, right? It's like, oh, after all that, all the pressure, all the healing, all the threats, he finally got to go home. <sighs> but there's really no rest for Jesus. Because it says that as soon as he got home, the crowd gathered again. So that they, that is he and his followers, could not even eat. No time to rest. No time for even a quick meal. And really, this is nothing new for Jesus. It's, it's the same kind of scene again. It's what we saw in chapter 1. This home, in fact, that he went back to is not really even his home. It's probably Peter and Andrew's home, two of his disciples. It's the same home where, if you, if you were here for this or if you've read the Gospel of Mark, you know that it's the same home where Jesus once healed Peter's mother-in-law, who was sick and almost dead. It's the same home where he had been mobbed prior to this. It's the same home where four guys lowered their paralyzed friend through the roof and, and Jesus healed him. It's that home it's not so much a place of solitude. It's not so much an oasis. It's just another place where he's going to get mobbed. And in some cases, in some sense, he's going to be under the threat of harm and even of death. So he's probably back there in Capernaum. And once again, the scene is super intense. It's so intense that he doesn't even have time to eat. Have, have you ever been so busy that you don't even have time to eat or you forget to eat? And maybe when you were younger and you forgot to eat, your mother would, would, would get on your case for it. She said, have you eaten yet? You need to eat something. Jesus, Jesus understands that experience because his mother's about to do the same thing. Jesus gets us, as they say. 
He understands what it's like to be so busy that you forget to even care for your most fundamental needs or you put them aside for a moment, but other people start to worry about you. That's what happens here. In fact, Jesus' whole family decides to stage an intervention. And so that's, a, that's what we're going to look at as our first point today. It's Jesus' family, his family's take on him. Let's see what his family thinks as they look on at him in this situation. Verse 21 says, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. He's out of his mind. So, so uh, who are we talking about here when we say his family? Um, it's probably his mother and his brothers. Um, that's what, we, what we'll see just a couple of verses down in verse 31. It says that his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him, and they called him. So based on that, and based on what we're going to see eventually when we get to chapter 6 of Mark, it seems like Jesus' dad, his, his earthly father, Joseph, had probably passed away at this time. He's not, he's not mentioned at all. But his mother, Mary, and his brothers are there to seize him. That's an aggressive word, by the way. They weren't just tapping it on his shoulder and saying, uh, uh, Jesus, maybe you need a break. No, the, the word to seize him means, it means they, it's the same word used for arresting him. It's the word that's used when, when Jesus was arrested. They tried to take him by force. This is a true intervention. And we might ask why, why, why? Um, and well, we might think that they were worried about him, right? Here he is mobbed by crowds. He hasn't eaten. He needs some rest. He keeps saying these provocative controversial things to powerful people. He's getting himself in trouble. It's no wonder his family was worried about him. But not only was Jesus attracting negative attention to himself, he may have also been attracting some negative attention to his family. It may very well be that his family wasn't just worried about him. They were worried about what all this meant for them. He was bringing shame on the family name. Either way, whether they're worried about him or worried about themselves, we're not sure exactly, but they step in and they say, this man has lost his mind. He, he can't make decisions for himself anymore. We've got to take hold of him and bring him to safety. Get him somewhere else. He's deranged. He's a danger to himself. He's a danger to us. I mean, I mean Jesus had just gone back into the very city where the authorities wanted him dead. He had walked right back into that danger. And he keeps confronting those people, powerful people, in public. He's asking for trouble. This is madness. That's his family's take, at least. He's mad. And by the way, by the way, Jesus' family would eventually change their mind. It would take a while. We won't read about it here today, but eventually... They would change their mind. When we read the Gospel of John, in John chapter 7, John tells us that at that stage in Jesus' life, his family did not believe in him. That is, there were many people that were entrusting themselves to Jesus, coming to him for healing. His family was not part of that. His family was suspicious of him. His family was looking at him like, he's special, certainly, but I don't think he is who he claims to be. In fact, I think he's out of his mind. 
but eventually they'd come to believe that he was, in fact, who he claimed to be. Everything would change, but it'd take a long time. It would take a few years. It would take a resurrection, in fact. Because it's when Jesus comes back from the grave, after he dies, he comes back to life, and everything changes. And then, then, even his family comes to believe in him. They come to realize that if anyone's crazy here, it's not him. We're the ones that have been blinded. We're the ones who have been acting crazy. We're the ones that have finally come to realize that he is who he claims to be. When we get to Acts chapter 1, we find that all of Jesus' disciples, his followers, were in a room praying because Jesus had died. And, they're, and, they're, 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 and, and he had risen from the dead. And they're, they're, they're there as his people, and amongst his disciples, who do we find out is there? Mary, his mother, James, his brother, Jude, his brother, his very family members who had once thought him crazy were in the room waiting for him. They had come to believe in him. James and Jude would eventually go on to write books of the Bible. You see how the resurrection changed their take. But at this stage, they thought he was a crazy man. They thought he was a crazy man. Let's look at the expert's take. That's uh, in verse 22. They're looking at Jesus a little differently than his family did. It says in verse 22 of Mark 3, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. Hmm. I call these guys experts because they were the acknowledged specialists when it came to interpreting God's word, the Hebrew scriptures. They were viewed as experts. These were the elite authorities on God's law. They were, in a sense, specialists. And they were sent all the way from Jerusalem down to this town of Capernaum, all the way from the capital, to investigate, to take a closer look at Jesus. Was this young rabbi breaking God's law with the things that he was saying and doing? Does he need to be stopped? They had to find out. The Sanhedrin, that is, there's a a council of religious authorities in Jerusalem called the Sanhedrin. Apparently, they sent this group down, this group of scribes, this group of specialists, down into this town to look into this matter. Now, when, when the Sanhedrin sends a group of investigators to look in on you, that means you're already in trouble. Now it's just a question of how much trouble are you in. It's easy to look at these experts, these scribes, and say, oh, they're just haters. And perhaps they were. But these folks were serious about studying and obeying the Scriptures. They had come to understand the scriptures in a certain way. And, and, and here was this, this former carpenter named Jesus from a, a, a no-name town named Nazareth. He had become a rabbi, a teacher, and now he's teaching things that, that seem to, to undermine the teaching of the experts. And this was troubling to them. And he's drawing crowds and... He's clearly powerful. He's doing miraculous things. No one can deny that. He's casting out demons. And by the way, the scribes don't even argue that. They admit that he is, in fact, casting out demons. 
They just question how it is that he's doing it. They, they realize that he has power, just like his family saw the power, but they had to come up with some explanation. Where is this power coming from? And so they accuse him of being evil. They accuse him of using power that is dark, that is wicked, that is not from God. They accuse him of being a phony savior, a kind of fake messiah who, who's conning people into thinking that he's from God, but really he's not from God. He's in partnership with Satan himself, the evil one, the enemy. They, they accuse him of, of using dark magic, of being empowered by demons. I, I want us to, to get a sense of how offensive these accusations are. How weird they are in a sense too. Because in fact, these accusations, they're, they're even more, more offensive and, and graphic than we might think. When they said he is possessed by Beelzebul, they're going as low as they can. They're, they're heaping on him the, the lowest offense they could. Beelzebul, it's an ancient word. It's related to the name of Baal, B-A-A-L, that pagan god that you may have read about in the Old Testament. That pagan god that was worshipped by the Philistines and by other people groups. That pagan god that is often called a demon. They say he is possessed by him. The the word itself, Beelzebul, it's meant something like the prince of the house. The ruler of the house. But, But Jews, because... They hated this demon so much. They would sometimes refer to him with a joke name. Instead of calling him Beelzebul, they would call him Beelzebub. Beelzebub. It was kind of a a joke, a roast. It meant, really, literally, the Lord, not the Lord of the house, but the Lord of the flies. The Lord of the flies, like, like the title of that book that some of you read many, many years ago. Why would they call him the Lord of the flies, this demon? Well, where do flies circle? Where do you find flies? It's in the trash. It's in the sewer. This was a way for Jews to to call this demon the Lord of the trash heap. The Lord of excrement. The Lord of feces is what they were saying. This is what the scribes are saying to Jesus. He is possessed. He's got power. But where is it coming from? Oh, He's possessed by the Lord of excrement. He's a phony Messiah operating not really as a representative and messenger from God, but he's actually under the control. He's been sent here by the Lord of the trash heap. This wasn't the only time that people made these kinds of accusations about Jesus. The scribes weren't even the first ones to do it. The gospel, according to John, tells us that Jesus once told a a crowd of people, maybe you remember this passage in John, he says, I am the good shepherd. And And he promises that he will lay down his life for his sheep. 
He's saying, I'm, I'm a king, but I'm a, I'm a particular kind of king. I'm the kind of king that will lay down his life to rescue his people, and then, and then I will pick my life back up again. He's predicting the fact that he would die for his people, and he would rise again from the dead. It's a bold claim, but, but John says that when, he, when they heard this, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. And many of them said, he has a demon and he is insane. Why listen to him? You see, when it comes to both Jesus' family and to these religious experts, they had both found reasons not to listen to Jesus. His family said, he's crazy. The scribe said, he's a con man and he has a demon. We don't need to pay him any mind. But others said, verse 21 of John chapter 10 says, others said, hmm, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? They had seen him heal blind people. And so they're thinking, hmm, the the crazy guy take doesn't seem to really fit. He also doesn't seem to be a, a phony who's possessed by a demon. We need some other kind of explanation We need some other kind of explanation for why this man is able to do the things that he's doing. And that leads us to our last point, Jesus' own take. His own take. That's in verses 23 down through 30. So we're going to read a bit of that right now. Verse 23 says, And Jesus called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But it's coming to an end. Verse 22, verse 23, I I should say, is is always interesting to me. It It says, Jesus called them to himself. These are the very people that were accusing him of being an agent of Satan. He calls them. He says, come on over here. And he begins to speak to them in parables. There's, there, there's a patience that we see in Jesus here. I, I really believe that if we were to be in the presence of, of Jesus in his human, uh, uh, full embodied form, we would find him to be a very calming presence. Look at how calm he is here. They're heaping offenses at him. He says, come here, come. And he begins to teach them. I, I hope you see the patience, the, the kindness of Jesus here. He's not so much defending himself. He's not a defensive man at all. He's patiently instructing them, and he warns them. He even takes time to to form his teaching into into parables. You know what those are, parables? That that Greek word for for parable, it's it's big enough to include things like, like proverbs and metaphors and similes, riddles even. So Jesus is talking to them in these metaphors. It's almost like a riddle. He gives them something to think about. And if they were willing to pay attention, and if we're willing to pay attention and think, we might see how absurd their accusations were. Jesus wants to warn them. In a nutshell, what Jesus communicates to them is this. He says, like, you're saying that I am under the power of Satan, that I'm operating as as a representative of Satan. But why would Satan be casting out demons? He says, why would Satan be casting out his own demons? 
Wouldn't that be self-defeating? It makes no sense. He says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. He quotes Abraham Lincoln. No, Abraham Lincoln quoted him. So logically, what Jesus is saying is, I can't be working for Satan. If I was working for Satan, I wouldn't be casting out Satan's minions. I wouldn't be freeing people from the control of the evil one if I worked for the evil one. And so he must be operating in the power of someone else. And that's when he goes on to explain he is operating in the power of God the Holy Spirit himself. The Jews had seen others like Moses and David and Elijah who were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and did amazing things. Here is Jesus saying, I am filled constantly, operating fully at all times with the power of the Holy Spirit. The very Spirit who you just called the Lord of excrement the very spirit who you just defamed and slandered. And then he follows that logical argument with a very remarkable claim. He says, I myself am stronger than Satan. I'm not even like Moses and David and Elijah. These others were filled at times with the power of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, I'm different from them. Look at verse 27. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his home. He's saying, look, I'm not in league with Satan. I'm busting into this place, this world where Satan has had control for too long, and I'm plundering his home. I'm breaking people free from his control. I'm rescuing people from him. I'm taking what Satan thinks he owns. These, these are the kinds of things that got Jesus in trouble, by the way. He says, I'm taking what the devil thinks he owns. He's saying, look, you don't realize it, but the, these healings, these exorcisms that you've watched, this is the very power of God invading this world. This is the kingdom of God. His reign, his rule is breaking into this world that's been under the, the control of Satan for too long. And he's saying, I am overwhelming the domain of Satan. He can't defend himself against me, Jesus is saying. The enemy of this world is under siege by Jesus. Jesus is storming in and taking back Satan's captives, the possessed, the sick, the oppressed. So you see the parable. It's a clear picture, this metaphor. It's like a home invasion. Jesus is the one doing the invading. He's the stronger man that busts in and binds up the strong but less strong man, Satan, and takes his property. Those are the people that Jesus is freeing. Remember, the, the kingdom of God, God's reign and God's rule was breaking into this world when Jesus arrived. That, that's happening at a global level. One day, when Jesus returns, his kingdom will completely fill this world. 
His reign and rule will overtake every corner of creation. But here in Mark 3, and even now, Jesus is busting in and establishing his reign, his rule, in the lives of individuals, in the hearts of people. He, he was freeing possessed people in this scene in Mark 3, but he's still freeing people today. It's happening at a person, personal level, person by person. As Jesus busts into your life and you come to submit yourself to him and you believe in him and you receive him for who he claims to be, he takes over. He takes over, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing. When Jesus saves an individual, what he begins doing is liberating you from the control of Satan, from the control of your own sinful desires. Now, now this happens in a sense that happens progressively. That process of becoming free, in one sense, it happens immediately, but in another sense, it, it takes time. It happens over the course of years. Maybe you've seen this in your own life. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've seen that there are areas of your life that were once under complete control of Satan. There were areas of life that were completely, completely toxic, ruined under the control of sin. But God started to give you freedom in those areas. He started to, to help you turn away from those sins that were destroying you and hurting others. But there's still other areas of your life where you still need to be freed. There are other areas of your life that, that you still need Jesus to come in and clean house. The process is slow. The process is slow. But if what Jesus is saying here in Mark 3 is true, then we can rest assured that he will not leave the work unfinished. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ and he has begun cleaning out the house of your life, putting things in order, then you can trust that he's going to keep doing it. Don't lose heart. Don't grow impatient. Keep trusting him. Keep welcoming him to do that rearranging, house-cleaning work. Because he loves to do it. He wants to do it. He wants to free you in every single area of your life. So don't hold anything back from him. Relationships that you're clinging to, even though you know they're harmful to you and to others, release them to him. He will clean house and you'll be better off as a result. Addictions, practices and habits that you know are hurting you and hurting others. He wants to free you in those areas and he will do it. He will do it. He's stronger than your sin, and he's stronger than our worst enemy. In verse 28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Jesus ends with these words. It's, it's a shift. It's, these, these are scary words in a sense. I just finished telling you that in one sense, be encouraged, be patient. God is, if God has begun to transform you from the inside out, if Jesus has started cleaning house in your life and rearranging things and healing you and, and transforming you, trust him. He's going to continue to do that. That's an encouraging word. But then Jesus ends with this in 28 to 30, and this, these words are scary. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit 
never has forgiveness. Some people over the years have looked at this passage and said, Jesus is talking about the unforgivable sin. So we've, maybe your Bible might even have that caption here, the unforgivable, the unpardonable sin. This passage has caused confusion in the hearts of a lot of people, a lot of worry. I remember being a young man thinking, a young boy thinking, have I committed the unforgivable sin? If I have, then what's the point? If I've done the very thing that is absolutely unforgivable, then I'm done. I wonder if you ever asked those questions, if you ever wondered about that. We need to interpret these words in light of the situation where Jesus said them. It says, he said these words because, quote, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. You see, these folks, these scribes, they were speaking recklessly. They didn't realize the weight of what they were communicating. And, and, and as is often helpful, when we speak recklessly, it's helpful for someone to check us and say, wait a second. Uh, listen to yourself. You better be careful. These folks are speaking recklessly. Jesus checks them and says, wait a second. Wait a second. He warns them that they are in danger of committing a sin from which there is no turning back. They're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Blaspheme, it means to, to slander, to defame, to malign, to speak evil of. And in the Bible, that word blasphemy is usually used to talk about slandering God specifically. Speaking evil of God. It, it, it's a kind of expression of defiant hostility towards God. Not only am I going to ignore him, I curse him. That's what blasphemy is. The scribes, they were familiar with this concept of blasphemy. In fact, what Jesus said here probably didn't even, wasn't even shocking to them. What would have shocked them is that he's saying it to them specifically. The idea that blaspheming the Holy Spirit is very dangerous and it's something that, that, that God perhaps won't even forgive, that, that would have been familiar to them. What was shocking is that Jesus is telling them, be careful, you yourselves are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. He's warning them. Remember, when Jesus cast out demons, it was a sign that the power and the reign of God is here. The kingdom of God is breaking into this world and freeing people. And the scribes are saying, no, that's not the power of God. That's the power of the devil, the Lord of the dung heap. They were calling God's grace evil. They, they were looking at the healing, they're looking at the freeing power of God, and they're saying, they're cursing it. They're saying, that is dark and wicked. So, so what they were doing here was a kind of conscience, uh, a deliberate rejection of God's saving power. They were looking at the grace of God and saying, trash, evil. And Jesus is telling them that when you, con this is important, Jesus is telling them when you consciously, persistently reject God, when you persistently reject his grace, you are choosing to reject forgiveness. Verse 30 tells us, it implies at least, that, that there's a stubborn kind of repetition going on here. It, Jesus is saying, if you stay in this pattern of continually rejecting the grace of God, continually saying, I don't believe, I don't believe that Jesus is from God, 
In fact, I'm suspicious of him. In fact, I think he's a threat to me. A fixed attitude of mind like that, you're putting yourself outside the realm of forgiveness because you're rejecting the very one, the only one, who's able to forgive. You're rejecting the power of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is the only one that can actually free you and give you a new life. You see, when Jesus says that there's no forgiveness for those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit, he's not talking about people, he's not talking about a God who refuses to forgive as much as he's talking about people who refuse to receive forgiveness. He's talking about people who persistently keep pushing the Spirit away, pushing Jesus away, and refuse to admit that they're wrong, refuse to admit that they're guilty, refuse to admit that they need help, who reject him and even call him evil. And Jesus isn't even saying this to average folks. I think that's important, too, as we look at the, especially for those of us who might read this passage and think, like, have I done this? Am I in danger of committing the unpardonable sin? Look at the fact that Jesus is speaking to people who should have known better. These aren't average folks here. These were experts in the law. These were folks that, these were teachers, right? These were folks that had the responsibility to recognize Jesus for who he was. They should have looked at him and said, everything about him aligns with what we know about God. And they should have pointed other people to him and said, follow him. But instead, they insult him and they reject him. And they slander him. I'm going to read a quote to you. It's a little long, but I hope it's helpful. It's by a a New Testament scholar, and and he puts things here in a way that I, I hope helps. He says, rejecting Jesus out of ignorance is one thing. But attacking the power by which he works is something far more serious. If one is ignorant, one can be informed. But if one is willfully blind and deaf and rejects help, what can be done? That one has cut himself off from what might lead to repentance. And that's the idea I want to get here. Jesus is saying by rejecting the work of the Spirit, by rejecting him, you're cutting yourself off from the source of forgiveness and help. The sworn enemies of Jesus have shut their eyes to the truth. They say good is evil in order to turn others away from Jesus, to preserve their own authority and to resist becoming disciples. God is willing to forgive even this sin. But they have willfully shut themselves off from God's forgiveness. It is not a single action, but a continual state of spurning the Spirit's work You see, blaspheming the Holy Spirit is not something that one does by accident or impulsively. If you're worrying that you've done this, you probably haven't. It's a settled state of mind and heart in which you slander the Spirit. And it's also interesting that in that same line, in verse 28, Jesus is warning against this unforgivable sin. He also says, all sins, verse 28, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. For wherever there is repentance and confession, there is forgiveness. Anyone who's worried that they've committed the sin against the Holy Spirit is probably not committing it. Those who are committing it aren't worried about it. 
No one asks God for forgiveness and gets rejected. So this is a warning. It's not a condemnation, but it's a warning. It's a warning to not keep resisting. Che reminded us a few weeks back that as we reject the grace of God, what inevitably happens is we grow callous to it. We grow hardened to it. The friction of rejecting, metaphorically, the friction as we reject God's grace, as it keeps knocking and knocking and coming and coming, we keep pushing and pushing and pushing. It creates a kind of callousness, a kind of hardness. It becomes harder for us to believe. I believe Jesus is warning us against that. But we got to end. we got to end. So there you have it, New Hope. Three takes on Jesus. One, he's a crazy man. Two, he's a con man. Or three, he is king. He is king. I, I wonder, are there any other options? I don't see any other options. You either have to dismiss him as crazy or reject him as a con man, a phony, or you have to receive him as king. What do you think? What do you say? What do you say? The author C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and many other books, also wrote a book called Mere Christianity. And in it, he makes this strong point. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Maybe you've heard people say this about Jesus. Maybe you've said this about Jesus. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. I I think as C.S. Lewis wrote these words, he was thinking of Mark 3, 20 to 30, the passage we just looked at. You must make your choice, he says. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I want to give you something to think about as you leave here today. Who do you say Jesus is? What's your take? I also want you to consider as you leave here why it is that his family and these scribes arrived at their takes. His family had reasons to think that he was crazy. I wonder what those reasons were. It's very hard to accept your own family member to be king and lord, God, to submit yourself. So they had reasons. They had prejudices in place, right? As his family members, they had reasons to want to not believe that he was really lord. And these scribes, they had reasons to malign Jesus. They had, they had reasons for not believing that he was Lord. I mean, if he really was Lord, then that was a threat to them. That meant that their authority was in question. It meant that their position and status was going to be undermined. The reason I'm bringing this up is because I'm thinking that all, none of us are neutral in this, right? When we start to think about who is Jesus, we've all got certain prejudices in place. We've all got something to lose if we're going to really admit that he's Lord. 
So I wonder for you, as you look at him and think about, is he just a madman? Was he evil, a con man, or is he in fact king? What's motivating your decision? Are there certain prejudices that you bring to the question? I know that for me, for a long time, I wasn't willing to admit that Jesus was Lord because I didn't want to give up claim on my life. If he really is Lord, then that means I can't be king of my life. I need to submit to him. That means that everything he says has to matter to me now. And that scared me. That means the areas of my life that do not align with his will, I need to turn away from. And that frightened me to death. And so I said, no, he's not Lord. I avoided the question. I don't know if he's a madman. I don't know if he's a con man. Maybe he's one of those. I just, I, I simply recuse myself. I don't want to make a decision. But in that passivity, that refusal to decide who Jesus is, I was making a decision. I was actively rejecting him through my passive ambivalence. And I was motivated by fear. Fear of what it would look like to submit myself. Now, now, now hear the irony of this. Fear of what it would look like to submit myself to the one who would completely forgive me and free me and give me everything that I need and in eternity everything I could desire. Who's the madman there? Who's the madman there? I want to encourage each of us to answer this question for ourselves. What's your take on Jesus? Who is he? Maybe for you it's for the first time you have to come to a decision on who you believe him to be. This, this evidence requires some kind of response. But for some of us, maybe, maybe you already know he's Lord. You know he's king. You've made that decision. But, but Lord, it's, <laughs> Lord knows it's a daily struggle <laughs> to keep believing, to keep trusting him to trust that he will continue to work in your life. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have submitted yourself to him as Lord, know this, trust this, he will continue. He will finish the work that he has started in you. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. Don't turn away from him. Submit every single area of your life to him. He wants to free you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the patience and the love with which you reveal yourself to us. Don't stop, Lord. Don't stop. Keep pursuing. Keep showing us who you are. But Lord, also fill us with a sense of urgency, a sense of the need that we have to come to terms with who you really are. Show us, Lord. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.